every body is beautiful, which is a thing that sometimes people don't want me to say because like, well, beauty shouldn't be the standard. Okay. So I'm not talking about attractiveness based on culturally constructed aspirational ideals. I'm talking about every flower you see is beautiful and every deer that you see is beautiful. Every dog is beautiful, no matter what they look like because they are alive on earth. Every body already is beautiful because they are alive and this is their body. With whatever disability, illness, pain, all the ways they don't conform to the culturally constructed ideal, all of them are already beautiful. And what if, you, if looking in the mirror in particular feels too much for someone, they can just try walking around in the world and every time they see someone, think to themselves, that person is so beautiful. Hi, I'm Rachel Hollis and this is my podcast. I spend so many hours of every single week reading and listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos and trying to find out as much as I can about the world around me. And that's what we do on this show. We talk about everything, life and how to be an entrepreneur. What happened to dinosaurs? What's the best recipe for fried chicken? What's the best plan for intermittent fasting? What's going on with our inner child? How's therapy working out for you? Whatever it is my guests are into, I want to unpack it so that we can all understand. These are conversations. This is information for the curious. This is the Rachel Hollis Podcast. What are some of the beliefs that we hold about sex as American women, many of us, we're like, here we go, uh, that are so misguided and actually keep us from enjoying sex, enjoying ourselves, reaching orgasm, like just like all of it, which I yeah. know is probably a long conversation, but let's start there. I mean, but that is, that is the big question, right? Right. right. Um, and I think what it comes down to is that a lot of us were raised, specifically if on the day you're born, people look at your genital package and they go, it's a girl. They fit you into a box that uh, my sister and I call human giver syndrome. <laughs> where you are taught that your moral, moral obligation is to be pretty, happy, yet calm, generous, and unfailingly attentive to the needs of others. Wow. Yeah. Which shows up in a lot of domains of our lives, but let's just think now how it shows up in our sexuality. That means even if you feel totally great about your sexual connection with someone, if you're doing things with someone and they're touching you in a way that's kind of and they say i'm making a hand gesture that i, I love this we're doing wax see. on wax off which is yes where a lot they're touching of you and they're like do you like that as a human giver what do you say uh, oh so yes so mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. good yep because god yeah. forbid we don't in this scenario we're having sex with man we don't want to offend him we don't want to make him feel bad we don't want him we don't to hurt his feelings don't want to hurt his feelings he's given it his Absolutely best not. try and so we just say and his ego matters so much more than our pleasure does right but i also would add to this too when i I met my ex-husband when I was 18 years old. I had never kissed a person before. So now here I am thrust into this situation. I don't even know that for me, I, don't, I didn't even have the consciousness at the time to think, oh, I want to make sure his ego's okay. I actually didn't know what felt good. 
Yes. You know, I grew up believing that masturbation was so sinful, so wrong. So yes. I didn't know what I enjoyed or what I liked. So I was like, well, this is kind of exciting and I feel something. So I also it, it said definitely yes. feels. <laughs> right. right. It feels exactly. <laughs> and because you've never felt it before, you assume, okay, so we're doing sex-related things. This must be what sex feels like. I guess this is pleasure. Right. Right. So true. And it's not always easy to recognize because part of the complexity of understanding what pleasure even feels like in our bodies, much less whether or not we're allowed to feel pleasure, that's like an additional layer of the conversation, but understanding what pleasure feels like is that ambivalence is normal. And it's almost inevitable. If you were raised in a culture that taught you that sex is shameful, dirty, and disgusting, except under these very limited circumstances, then anything that feels sex-related is also going to activate the part of your brain that's worried that maybe this is shameful, dirty, or disgusting. Right. Um, and this is grounded in how our brain actually works. There's a, a thing called the dual control mechanism, where there's a sexual accelerator that responds to all the sexy things that are happening. So this is everything in your five basic senses, everything you see, hear, smell, touch, taste, and crucially, everything you think, believe, or imagine, and your body sensations. All that stuff goes up to your brain and activates the turn-on signal that many of us are familiar with. And at the same time in parallel, in addition to an accelerator, you have a brake, which notices all the good reasons not to be turned on right now. Everything with your basic senses, everything you see, hear, smell, touch, taste, and everything you think, believe, or imagine, or feel inside your body that your brain interprets as a potential threat. And that break sends a turn-off signal. So arousal and pleasure are this dual process of turning on the ons, but also turning off the offs. And a lot of us know about the accelerator and have never heard of the break. Exactly. <laughs> and it turns out when people are struggling, the usual advice is to add more stimulation to the accelerator, you know, like handcuffs and role play and porn. And if those things are for you, then great, go ahead. And it turns out when people are struggling, it's much more often necessary not to add stimulation to the accelerator, but to reduce stimulation to the brakes, which is all that cultural stuff, how we feel about our body, how we feel about sex itself, how we feel about like whether or not a woman is allowed to experience sexual pleasure and prioritize it in her life. Yeah, it's also, I mean, this is something that you cover extensively in the book that I was just like, obviously, but I've never heard someone say it this way right. before. Once you know it, you're like, oh my oh, God, you yes. can't unknow. Well, obviously, if you have gone through a big life change, if you're stressed out, if you're not feeling super into your partner right now, if you're, there's so many things that I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so obvious when you lay it out in the book. But if you don't ever have this conversation with someone, if you don't ever have this wisdom, you will spend your entire life or your entire life up until maybe you listen to this thinking that something's wrong with you. Because right. the also twisted part of sexuality was I was raised in this church that was like, this is sinful and wrong and ugly, but also I was raised in a culture that was like, but you got to be sexy, but you need to make sure that you're mm -hmm. a lady in the streets, but a freak in the sheets. And I'm like, I right. don't know how. I don't I don't know what that means. You've got to wear this like lacy underwear and do this thing and like be sexy for your man. 
And it was such a warped way. I just always felt like, I don't know what I'm doing here. So you know what? Yeah. We'll just make this about him. This is way more important to him. Mm-hmm. I'll quote unquote, take one for the team forever and ever Oof. and ever. Amen. Oh, girl. That, I mean, hmm. I'm just <sighs> speaking honestly because I know there's probably a lot of women or maybe yeah. some men who have done the same. No, probably not men. Uh, <laughs> but I just, I didn't know better because I thought, oh, this matters to him a lot more than it matters to me. So I just am wired Fine, I'll just go along with yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The awareness now, I'm almost 40 years old. You know, I'm since divorced. I'm in an incredible relationship now. I am even aware since reading your book, oh, so my kids are with me uh, every other week. So half the time they're with their dad, half the time they're with me. And very unsurprisingly, the week the kids are here, there are four of them, least sexy time on planet. I Oh, yeah, no. No. I am pulled in 1,000 directions. All I do is carpool people and make food and pick up messes and clean up puke and it's so wild. <laughs> Literally, they went back to, they'll go back to their dad's today after school. And like immediately something in my body changes. I'm like, all right, where's Boo? Where is that man? What is like, and I never had a word for that before until I read the book. And that word is context. Yes, context. Yes. No, you're going to explain it. I'm not going to explain your work to you, but I loved the context chapter. <laughs> so the short version, um, do you mind if I talk about the rat brain science? Like I love talking it. about oh, the research. Let's go. Reptilian brain. I wrote about this in my last book too. And I was like, literally no one cares but me, but still. I know. Let's be lab rats. Uh, and the researchers are going to painlessly imp- implant a probe into our nucleus accumbens shell, which has a thing called an affective keyboard. And the affective keyboard just means like, uh, it's, it's like a, a keyboard on a piano where like it goes from one place and it travels to another. So when you zap the front of the affective keyboard, you get positive approach motivation, uh, which in a rat looks like, oh, oh, what's that? Oh, oh, what's that? One of my favorite things is pretending to be a rat. It just turned into like a thing in my life. Oh, what's that? Curious approach, exploration, motivation. And when you zap the back of the nucleus accumbens shell, you get avoidance motivation, which is, oh, what the hell is that? Uh, where your these foot motions are stamping to kick up dust. It's defensive digging to, to get the dust in the face of the predator like a snake. There's videos online of rats doing this, and it totally works. Like, ah, get away from me. This is moving away. Motivation, avoidance, fear, stress. But if we, the lab rat, with the little probe in our brain, move into what I call the rat spa, so it is dark, silent and it smells familiar it's just the most like relaxing imagine yourself like after a spectacular massage and you're in the restroom and you can like see the ocean it's just this is this is my personal right this like, is your happy space that you get <laughs> yeah this is when they zap the front of the nucleus accumbens what they get is ooh, ooh, what's that and in this rat spa which the researchers just call the home environment when they zap the back of the nucleus accumbens, what does the rat do? It still wants to be there. Mm. No? Ooh, yeah. what's that? Yeah. Mm, yeah. Approach motivation. When you are in that more relaxed, positive, non-stressed state of mind, your 90% of that organ in your brain becomes devoted to approach motivation, even in response to stimuli that in a different context, it responded to as a threat to be avoided. Right. But wait, there's more. Yes. Because yes. we, as lab rats, we move from the rat spa into, it is 
brightly lit. The music is playing really loudly, but not even just at a stable volume. It'll be loud and then quiet. So you can't even just like adjust to it. And you are a introverted bookworm at the worst nightclub in the world. They're literally playing Iggy Pop and... They zap the front of your nucleus accumbens, which in every other setting has resulted in, ooh, what's that? Approach curious motivation. But here, when you're so stressed out, even zapping the front of the nucleus accumbens makes you go, ah, what the hell is that? And want to move away from it. When you are in a stressed out, unsafe state of mind, 90% of this organ in your brain becomes devoted to avoidance motivation, even in response to stimuli that in a different context, it would have approached with curiosity. So there's almost nothing. If you're in a stressed out enough state of mind, there is almost nothing even a beloved sexy partner can do that's going to feel pleasurable. Right. And I just want listeners to sit with this for a second because I think that as women, especially as wives in certain cultures, like we have this belief that it is our job to be there, to get there, or to let them try to get us there. And, the, and it should be easy oh, and fast. Right. And why doesn't this work for you? And being made to feel like if you're not getting turned on, that it's somehow you're hurting your part. Like it's so warped. I yeah. love anything in life that gives us a why. This is why yeah. this is happening. You're not abnormal. You're not weird. It's society or culture that's weird for telling you that you should behave differently. Yeah. So in the book, I'm just going to keep saying this. I want everyone reading to go get Come As You Are. In the book, you give so many great examples of students or friends of yours or what this looks like in a real life relationship. And the example you give on this one, I think, is like a girlfriend and her husband, they try and recreate like a sexy vacation. Yeah. Will you talk about that? Right. Yeah. So these friends of mine, they had a kid who was special needs. He was a very bad sleeper. And my friend also had a full-time job and was a grad student at the same time. So she's really stressed out. But they remembered from earlier in their relationship having a really great getaway at a bed and breakfast, I think, in the Poconos. And she had lost all of her groove. She had zero. She's, it, her desire was flatlining. They're like, OK, so what we should do is try to recreate the context where we had great sex. So they go back to the same bed and breakfast. But like the drive was really difficult. They were really stressed out when they got there. And though they had tried to recreate the context, they had gone to the same physical place because their mental state was not the same. They couldn't recapture the feeling they had that time they went there before. So even though they had gone to the same physical place, they weren't really capturing the same context because they were so stressed out. So what do you say to, I mean, I, I bet you could give us all sorts of answers, but what do you say to listeners who really, they miss that. They miss that connection. They really, you know, they have a new baby or they, there's something happening mm -hmm. in life that's really affected the context of their ability to mm -hmm. enjoy. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. 
Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Debit card users, listen up. You've worked hard for your money. Now it's time to make it work even harder for you. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can get cash back on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Earn on things like gas, groceries, and even that midday latte. And to top it off, there are no fees, period. Yep, that means you won't be charged fees on your checking account. Transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank. Member FDIC. Is it, hey, let's just take a break? Is it there are things you could do? Like, how do we help this? Yeah. So the first part of the answer is only ever do things that you like. <laughs> Pleasure for I know Imagine. it sounds really simple wow. and basic, but you'd be because we are taught that we have a kind of duty or an obligation or a responsibility, the doctor tells us, what is it, eight weeks after birth? Girl. We're ready? Girl. I was thinking about that. I actually, I must have been thinking about this because I was reading your book. I was remembering the first time that I had sex. My oldest is 15 years old. The first time that I had sex, it was my first baby. And the doctor said, all right, you're approved to have sex. And my husband at the time was like, well, let's go. And I was 24 yeah. and totally insecure and totally incapable of standing up for myself. And I remember it was the worst sexual experience of my entire life. I remember, you know, I have an eight week old, so I'm wearing a bra with like those pads because you're just nursing. Pads, ner- yeah, yeah. Nursing pads. You're, you're leaking, leaking, leaking. I remember turning my head to the side and crying, crying. So he couldn't see me because oh. I was so miserable and uncomfortable, but I did not know that I was allowed to say no. And I didn't know that I was allowed to just say like, this sucks and this is awful and I don't like it. (laughs) And what's very interesting as just the context or how things change or whatever, I had a pregnancy with my third son. God, if he ever hears this, he'll run into traffic. But I, I don't know what button got pressed during that pregnancy, but I was like, I could not have enough. Sex. I was, it was wild. I would pay a million dollars to bottle whatever that was to get it back again. Cause it was so in context, the doctor said, you're approved to go. And I was like, let's go. And the first time I had sex after my third son, one of the most incredible experiences of my life. So it, two completely different situations. Yeah. But I wish that little baby Rach at 24 years old would have known that she can say, I am not ready. I don't want to do this. I don't mm-hmm. know what my body is. But I really was so trapped in the ideology that his yes. pleasure was central to the success of our marriage. And it's not that his pleasure doesn't matter. Right, right. It's just not at the expense of your pain. A hundred percent. And I do think there is, I have a lot of issues with that man, but nothing made him feel more like a hero than me having a good time. 
Like, yeah. that's all he wanted in the world was to give me a good time. But I didn't have the language, especially early in our relationship, to be able to say what that was. I keep interrupting you because I get excited, so I'm so sorry. Yeah, <laughs> but you I'm said, excited too. I'm right. like, I want to say so many, so things. many things, but I don't. <laughs> I don't want to miss this because I felt like this was good. You said, okay, the first thing is to just not do anything that doesn't feel good to you. Right. Okay. My very simple definition of quote normal sex is any sexual contact, whatever that means for you and your partner or partners, uh, where everyone is glad to be there. <laughs> And free to leave with no unwanted consequences yes. and no unwanted pain for anyone. Wow. I feel like you should say it again, Emily. I know it's silly, but it's really, this is important. Everyone needs to be glad to be there and free to leave with no unwanted consequences. And that includes social or interpersonal consequences. No resentment, no judgment or blame that you're free to say no at any point, if you're just like, this isn't working for me, or right in the middle of things, my period has started, right. and now I have cramps, right. and like, we're done. Right. Like, because things happen. Right. Or you get interrupted by who knows what. Yes. So everyone is glad to be there, free to leave, and no one's experiencing unwanted pain. If you're experiencing pain and you are into it, right. do you. Yes, do you. Absolutely. Oh, I feel and like so And if you're experiencing pain that is just uncomfortable, then stop right. and seek a medical provider. Right. Pain right. is the one thing beyond consent where I'm like, that's actually not normal. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel like it's possible that so many people listening to this just had their mind blown because they realize that their you know, long-term relationship or their loving partner or any of those things, they're putting their sexual experiences through the lens of what you just said and realizing I definitely in my previous relationship would not have said, oh, that you could, the second one, that you could leave without consequences. Any consequences. Because the consequences would have been hurt feelings, would have been guilt, mm -hmm. would have been shame, would have been, it was just easier to go with it. As a woman, right. you get taught, you have a moral obligation. Right. right. To meet other people's needs, regardless of the sacrifice to yourself. Absolutely. I got to this place in my relationship where I was like, well, if I'm going to be in this, I better figure out what the hell I like. I better figure out what feels good. I better figure out what actually can happen that I can enjoy this and have an orgasm and be here. Because if I'm going to feel like this probably wasn't healthy, now I'm saying it out loud, but it was like, if I feel like I have to be here, I may as well be having a good time. Well, at least I mean, halfway there. I'm all about harm reduction. That is a right. step in a good direction. <laughs> right. Okay. So, like, I want you right. to feel no obligation yes. ever to show up and do anything right. that you're not interested in. Right. Um, but if you're like, I feel like it's important that I show up and do things. Yeah. Uh, there's a sex therapist in New Jersey named Christine Hyde who uses this party analogy with uh, her clients. She says, so if your best friend invites you to a party, you say yes because it's your best friend in a party. Uh, but maybe as the date approaches, you start thinking, oh, I'm going to have to organize childcare. There's going to be all this traffic. Am I really going to feel like putting on my party clothes at the end of a long week? But you said you would. And so you put on your party clothes and you show up to the party. And what usually happens? You, well, if it's my best friend, I'm definitely going to have a great time once I'm there. Yeah. There you go. Right. If you're having fun at the party, you're doing it right. Yeah. 
So, like, even if you're a bit like, mm, okay, I mean, I guess we said we would. We scheduled our date night, like the sex therapist said. And you sort of, like, you're chucking the last of the toys in the toy boxes, and you're carrying the last little laundry up with you into the bedroom. And you get there, and you're like, okay, fine. But you, you know, you let your skin touch your partner's skin, and your body wakes up and goes, oh, right, I really like this. Yeah. I really like this person. You're doing it right. Yeah, definitely. But if you show up and you don't like the sex you are having, there's no amount of being like totally horny for parties that's going to make that party worth going to. (laughs) So true. It's so true. I have uh, a friend who's a sex therapist and researcher, Peggy Kleinplatz. And what she often says is that low desire is often evidence of good judgment. Ooh, shit. Ooh, that is good. Low desire. Wait, say that again. Low desire is is often evidence of good judgment. Yeah, yeah, that's so real. The way she asks it of her own sex therapy clients is, "What kind of sex is worth wanting?" Mm, yeah, God, that's which is good. like you were you were moving in that direction where you're like, "I better find out what I even like." Yes, absolutely. So you were working toward what kind of sex is worth wanting. Right. And I think just I want to jump in there, but I want to go back to this thought real quick because I thought it's very easy for me from my perspective to say sort of why I came into a marriage and had that perception about who I was supposed to be in the bedroom and how I was supposed to act. But then I also think as a man, right, he also grew up with his own belief system I'm I'm speaking about any man, grew up with his own belief system, yep. possibly about how he was show, supposed to show up and who he was supposed yes. to be and how he was supposed to be this like stallion and like know all the things and make me come 400 times yes. a session. And I don't want to color this with the, oh, this person or men in general are assholes because they make – no, I think there's this whole – No, the masculinity right, masculine, yes. That they are force-fed. Yes is an asshole. Yes. Like, <laughs> yes. Yeah. And men are just as trapped as women are. Like their scripts are just as bogus. They're Like you said, they're not allowed to ask questions. They're not allowed to not already know everything. Um, you know that like county fair game where you take a hammer and you hit the thing and the yes. thing goes up and hits the bell, ding, and that means you're a man? Yes. The strength tester? Yeah. A lot of guys are taught that women's orgasms are like that. Mm. Like if they can make a woman come, right. they're real men. Right. Or ding, yes. and they're men. Which is a great dynamic to make a woman motivated to fake it. Ooh, yes. Because if his sense of personhood, his value as a man is contingent on your body doing something and your body's like not today man I'm pretty tired and stressed out and I just don't have it today but you really need it apparently so I will just give it to you and we can be done here god it sounds so crazy when you say it but it's so true for so many of us it's even Mm -hmm. like I'm jumping a little bit but in the book you talk about oh you'll obviously know the terminology for this but that your body can be displaying things that seem like Mm -hmm. it's not turned on or seem like it is. Like it can show the opposite of what you are because I'm thinking of how many times 
it's like, oh, you're so wet. Like you really want this. You're so wet. You're so into it. And then other times like, oh, you're, you're not no, into it. You're not wet. And I'm you're like, no, nice. I'm really into it. I can't control yeah. what's happening down there. But like, please don't stop. This is great. What's the, yeah. remind me what that is all yeah. about. So the technical term is arousal non-concordance, yes. which just means there's a mismatch between uh, how much blood is flowing to your genitals, essentially, how much wetness is happening, uh, versus how you subjectively feel. And for some people, there's a close match most of the time. Like if blood is flowing to your genitals, that's a pretty good indicator that you're turned on. And for some people, really not. Yeah. <laughs> Very much not. Yeah. Like you can have your genitals. And we all know this when we think about like teenage boys, for example, right? Like, you know, you're 13 years old and sitting in the back of a bus and the bus is vibrating and that gives you an erection because you're 13 and the testosterone is just totally out of control. Or like your teacher's shirt moves in a particular way and your penis is like, B. And are you are you turned on? Like, do you want to have sex with the bus? <laughs> no, of course not. Right? Right. Right. So we all understand that arousal non-concordance is a thing. And we also understand it with penises when it comes to erectile dysfunction. Like yeah. that's a person who really wants to have an erection. An erection is not available to them for whatever reason in that moment. They want it. They like what's happening. And the penis is just not cooperating today. That is a normal thing that totally happens. Those same normal things happen with vulvas also. But when it comes to vulvas, I mean, really, it's everybody. But we tend to say, like, no, if there's not blood flowing to genitals, that means you're not into it. And it's it's just not true. Or, oh, you are so wet. That means as if your genitals can give, like, consent. <laughs> as if they can say yes or no. When all they can say is a sex-related stimulus is happening right now and I am ready and willing to respond to it. Yes. Versus no sex-related stimulus is happening right now. Or maybe sex-related something is happening, but like now is not, I'm not ready or willing to respond to this right now for whatever reason, biological, social, psychological, relationship, whatever. Bodies just vary. And if there's a difference between how you feel and what's going on with your genitals, which is right. How you feel. How you feel <laughs> every time, every time. Absolutely. And if your partner has a mismatch between what their genitals are doing and how they say they feel, which do you believe? Right. How they say they feel. You believe yeah, your partner. Yeah, absolutely. Every time. Yeah. Yeah. God, it's so real. How much does the way we feel about our body play into? Oh, I, I mean, is it is just everything? I would say that the older I get, the more I fucking love my body like love it think it's sexy just vibe every part of it and it's not because it's getting more aligned with what I grew up believing the female body you know dream body was supposed to be it's just because I made a conscious decision to begin to love my body and here we are and it's an ever-evolving thing but mm -hmm. the quality of my sex in relation to the way I feel about my body unbelievable it's yeah. it can't even a, a really good example and like i'm gonna blush that's this is like my childhood showing you are you're already i'm blushing. totally blushing because i'm like i'm gonna talk about this publicly and then people are gonna listen it's okay i'm working through some childhood um stuff yep yep i have historically never loved being on top because you're just you're he here i am 
Here's every part of me. Here's all the things. They're bouncing. They're moving. Here's my stretch marks. Here's this, you know, all of it. Cottage cheese on your thighs. All of it, man. And in the last year through this work of like really learning to love my body, not only am I digging that position, but I'm also able to orgasm in that position, which I've never been able to do before. It's like Every time it happens, I feel like I just saw a unicorn. I'm like, what just happened? (laughs) So what is the connection in our mind between those two things? Stress and body image. Those are the big, almost universal two things that hit women's breaks in particular. Uh, So when you have body self-criticism and somebody is looking at or touching your body, everything you imagine they see, everything you imagine they feel activates those self-critical thoughts and do self-critical thoughts about your body activate the accelerator or do self-critical thoughts activate the brakes? The brakes for sure. Yeah. So if you are activating self-critical thoughts at the same time that you are doing sexy things, the brakes are just going to be on and that's going to prevent you from becoming more aroused, from experiencing more pleasure and usually getting to orgasm. So if you train yourself to not activate the brakes, to not have those self-critical thoughts, they're going to come floating in because we live in a culture that still not only rewards us for conforming with the culturally constructed aspirational ideal, but punishes us when we don't conform to the culturally constructed aspirational ideal. Um, And so we're afraid that if we accept our bodies as they are, somebody out there is going to come and get us and yell at us and be like, how dare you love your body exactly the way it is? How dare you not try to change your shape and size? So it takes practice. I often recommend people do the mirror activity where they stand naked in front of a mirror and write down everything they see that they like. And the first time you do it, it might be like your kneecaps. Yep. It might be like your spirit because you can see it in your eyes or your eyebrows or any one thing. But you keep doing it every day. You look and you look at what you like. And this will gradually build up. You'll be able to see your body clearly without the distorting cultural lenses of what my sister calls the bikini industrial complex. Right. That really wants you to conform to one specific body type and says that if you don't fit that body type, then you literally should be ashamed of yourself yes. and you are not allowed to access pleasure. So the more you're like, actually, my body's a freaking fracking miracle and what an enormous gift that is the one thing I have on the day that I'm born that I will still have with me on the day that I die. Hooray. <laughs> it's going to make being on top and being seen precisely as you are not hit the brakes, and even actively stimulate the accelerator. Yeah, for sure. I am taking my four children away this weekend to go skiing. And I think if you're a parent like me, you understand how important it is to have a kitchen available to you when you have four kids, which is why Airbnb is always the place that I head to just make the vacation easier. And I have always used Airbnb as a place to say, whether it was for work or family or a girl's weekend. But more and more, my friends are using Airbnb in a totally different way, as a business, as a way to invest in property and earn money for it. While you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle, and it's a great way to earn some extra money. 
your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Almost every morning of my life, I have oatmeal. Seriously, during the winter, having something hot in the morning really makes a big difference in my day. Quaker has been a trusted name in oatmeal for over 145 years, which means they've been milling oats since before the invention of the zipper, the stop sign, or ballpoint pens. Quaker has something for everyone, whether it's old-fashioned or quick oats that are good for cooking or baking. And while a ton of things have changed, the good stuff remains the same. Quaker, getting up to some good since 1877. Look for Quaker Oats at your local grocery store. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. If someone, I'm thinking too of this goal to love ourselves, this, the audacity, the sort of revolutionary mindset that we can look in the mirror, whether you're male or female, however you identify, and just be like, I love this. I'm grateful for this. This is what I got. Look at this ass that won't quit. Look at these boobies. Look at this. You know, I, I don't know what the fellas are super into about themselves, but whatever it is, it doesn't just change our sexual pleasure. It changes everything. It changes every single thing in our life. And I think is we always read about this goal that we should learn to love ourselves. And I do think so many of my listeners, and I'm sure so many people who um, are your readers, love that idea. They love that concept. And yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That this is such a huge piece, especially for the women I know, that you can aspire to love yourself. But if every time you look in a mirror, your instinct is disgust, your instinct is uh, mm-hmm. to pick it apart, to, to figure out what you need to do and change and how it needs to alter, mm-hmm. it's going to counteract all the work that you're doing in every other yeah. part of your life. And oh, by the way, uh, you've come to a place where you really love and accept your body, but you know, it's coming down the road menopause if you're lucky enough to like keep on living everything is going to change change. i find that it's about every five years my body changes so significantly that i need to start from scratch relearning to love this body and then five years later this body and then five years later this body i i wrote a book called burnout with my sister it's about stress for women um and we have a whole chapter on body image stuff and we don't actually talk about loving your body we talk about mess acceptance Hmm. recognizing that like you do genuinely have permission to love and embrace your body as it is. And also every time you 
checkout at the counter at CVS, you're going to see a magazine that's body shaming some celebrity and is going to have like, you know, weight loss tips. And you're going to have, you know, a parent who says, but you're going to lose the weight, right? Or you're going to go on dates with people who are going to reject you because your body doesn't conform to some specific definition of what they consider the right body for them. Like, it's real. And there's physical consequences. If your body doesn't fit in public transportation seats. We have a friend, one of our motivations for writing about it this way is that we have a friend who went to get a breast cancer screening and was told that the table could not support her weight. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's real. It's not just that we get shamed culturally. It's that the infrastructure of our spaces is not designed for people of size who are citizens of the world and deserve to fit into the spaces of the world, right? right? So we recommend mess acceptance where on the one hand, yes, you have permission and yes, you can look at your body and practice embracing what you've got. And also you're going to get punished. Sometimes you're going to feel excluded. People who are fat are paid less at work and they are more likely to be bullied as students, not just by other students, but by their teachers, right? Like it's real. So it's a mess. It's just always going to be a mess. As a sex educator, uh, people have this image that I'm going to look like a cross between a porn star and a newscaster. And I really don't. (laughs) And the older I get, the more I don't. (laughs) Like, I will constantly have this. Actually, like, I was, you know, preparing for a keynote address. And I was intentionally losing weight for it. Even though that is counter to everything that I teach and know. But the thing is, I also know that I will be taken more seriously as a professional the closer I come to conforming to the ideal. Right. Right? Right. I know that that's true from experience and from the research. Right. So I weighed myself and then I called my sister and I was like, this is very screwed up. I'm being paid to give a talk somewhere to talk about a thing that is in direct contradiction to the ways that I am preparing for the talk. And she's like, yep. It's a mess. It is. Honestly, it's so true because I have worked so hard over the last five years to let go of the image I thought I needed to portray in order to be taken seriously in doing this work. Like, do I think that 2018, 2019, the success of my books, the explosion of me as a keynote speaker, being asked to speak all around the world. Do I think that that would have been the same level of success if I didn't have hair extensions and lash extensions and makeup and outfits and all of the bullshit that I used to do back then because I thought I was and your body to? shape and your whiteness, hundred percent, yeah. Like I'm yep, straight, I'm white, I'm American. All of these things are adding to this. In your legitimacy, Absolutely. Right? And I've tried so hard to, especially with the podcast, especially if I'm doing video, if there's something going on YouTube. I literally came from the gym today where I was ta- not to look a certain way, but because I just wanted to move. So I had energy to, to do this conversation yeah. well. And I'm in my gym clothes. Exercise is good for right. you. That's just true. Yeah. Like in my gym clothes, I'm not wearing makeup. I No way I would have done this three years ago because I would think that if you didn't see me in a full look, I didn't have as much value. And I'm like, wait, mm. I've lived the same type of experience. I do the same level of work, if not better, because I'm not uncomfortable in those clothes that aren't me when I show up as myself. But what is this warped world, especially for women, 
that if mm-hmm. you're not showing up as a very specific thing, you have less of a chance. And then yes. in your instance, in many of our instances, do you play the game or do you yep. take a stand? Right. And do you feel like you flip back and forth? You're like, because I definitely do. If I got invited to do a keynote tomorrow, I'm putting makeup on. Yeah, I'm putting makeup on. Right. So. Yeah, if I'm if I'm standing on a stage and there are lights on me, I want you to see my face. Right. And I want you not to be like repel. Also, it's just like it's more professional yes. for a woman to do a thing that a man would be perceived as being unprofessional if they did it. 100%. Wearing a skirt. Oh, wearing I, makeup. Like, when it comes to the style of speaking that I would do, I think of the men who lead out in this field, right? And I don't even know if you know these names, but like people like Gary Vaynerchuk, which is this massive media guy. Get, He's a man. He's He's alpha. He's also wearing a t-shirt. He maybe didn't shower today. He's got a hat on. Maybe like, uh, no way. No way. If you showed up in sweatpants and a t-shirt. Even though my ability to speak, right. Bareface. It's the same. I am the same person. I, it's wild. It's so wild. And I I do. I go back and forth on whether or not. I do too. I should. Right. Do everything I can to conform to the ideal because, like, I feel like my work is important. I want people to hear the message. I know that they will hear me more easily if I do everything I can to conform to that ideal so, so that they right. can hear me. You're so, it's exactly that. But also, it's the opposite of my message. Mm-hmm. Girl, I've never heard anybody talk about this, and I really appreciate that we are because it is a hundred percent. There are times where I'm like, screw this, I'm not doing this anymore, and then. Here we go again, yeah. and we're back in this world because I'm like, wait, but if I have the platform or if I have more eyeballs on the work, then I can speak. Then maybe a conversation about sex changes the way that someone listening feels about their body, and that would be amazing. So, yeah, here but we it are. is messy, and like, I'm never going to be the one who's just like, you can just look. I so appreciated Emma Thompson when she was promoting. Uh, best of luck Leo Grand how she talked uh-huh. about like you can free yourself to live your life's purpose don't waste it on criticizing your body and I was like that's great I love that that's coming from Emma Thompson but it can come from Emma Thompson because she is so freaking fracking beautiful and right. talented and successful right. Right. and like very much like conforms already a whole lot to the cultural right. constructed aspirational Absolutely. ideal yeah. so she's the one who can say it out loud but if like you know a fat black trans person showed up and said the same thing we'd be like well because our culture is that's that's who our culture is yeah and it's messing with our orgasms right right because we believe that we're supposed to show up in a really specific way yeah and there's also the issues of disability illness chronic disease pain like bodies can be really inconvenient and we have to adapt the way we have sex to make space for our bodies as they actually are right now. And every body is beautiful, which is a thing that sometimes people don't want me to say because like, well, beauty shouldn't be the standard. Okay. So I'm not talking about attractiveness based on culturally constructed aspirational ideals. I'm talking about every flower you see is beautiful and every deer that you see is beautiful. Every dog is beautiful, no matter what they look like, because they are alive on earth. Right. Every body already is beautiful because they are alive and this is their body. Yeah. With whatever disability, illness, pain, all the ways they don't conform to the culturally constructed ideal, all of them are already beautiful. 
And what if you, if looking in the mirror in particular feels too much for someone, they can just try walking around in the world. And every time they see someone, think to themselves, that person is so beautiful. Mm. And actually, like, look for the beautiful. Not talking yeah. about the ways they conform to some standard, but like the beauty, the spirit, the spark of their humanity. So beautiful. That person is so beautiful. That person is so beautiful. And it will change the way you experience your own self-criticism. Like, absolutely, I can see beauty in other people who have these things going on with their body. I can see beauty in me, too. Yeah. Yeah, I think that if you are judgmental of other people and the way that they look, there you have there's zero percent chance that you're going to feel good about yourself because what you're giving to others, you're you're going to be worse in your own mind about yeah. yourself. So Those that people practice, you're judging are mirrors yeah. that are showing you exactly. the parts of yourself that you find it impossible to tolerate. Exactly. I read something years ago that said to whenever you interact with a stranger, to take note of the color of their eyes. Because mm. in order to notice someone's eye color, you have to slow down and look them in the eye. And that when we notice their eye color, you see their mother's child. You see the humanity in someone, the barista or mm -hmm. the person at the DMV or the other mom at school drop-off. And it makes you slow down and see something different than just these people that are in mm -hmm. our world. And it feels more important than ever in a society that's so divided and so obsessed with a screen and not connecting in a way that feels meaningful to just slow down. And I love that idea. Seeing the beauty in them allows you to see the beauty in yourself. Mm -hmm. If someone is single right now, I, I do want to talk about masturbation because I feel like it would be remiss if we didn't get there. But if someone mm -hmm. is single right now and this is blowing their mind, they're going to get the book, they're going to revolutionize their sexuality, the way they feel about their body, all the things. Do you have advice for what they should be looking for in a partner? Like, are there things that you're like, you want a partner? And I don't mean a partner with a, I was going to say something very crass and we're not drinking, so I won't go there. <laughs> um, but you the thing is, I know exactly what you were going to say now. <laughs> I know, I know. But, um, and I can tell you that the research that confirms that that is not a thing. That is not a thing. It is not a thing. I, yep, I totally agree. Um, For anybody who doesn't know what we're talking about, right. it doesn't matter because it's, it's not size, a thing. Right. <laughs> it's not a thing. Actually, that is a really good um, point that the things that we are told will make sex better are not going to unless it's an accelerator for you. Yes. So my mission, my whole purpose, my reason for being alive on earth is to teach people to live with confidence and joy inside their bodies. And for me, confidence is knowing what is true about your body and mind, your culture, your brain. So knowing about the dual control model, knowing about arousal non-concordance, knowing what gets you to orgasm, if orgasm is a thing for you. Uh, and joy is the hard part because joy is loving what is true, knowing what's true, loving what's true about your body, loving what's true about your, let's face it, real screwed up culture, loving what's true about your brain and your mind, loving what's true, even if it's not what you wish were true, even if it's not what you were taught is supposed to be true. When you approach a partner with confidence, loving what's true about you and joy, loving what's true about you, that does make it a lot easier for them to approach you with confidence and joy for 
regardless of whatever ways that you don't m completely overlap with their expectations about what a partner is supposed to be. It's easier for them to love those things if you already do. But man, is it easier if you hook up with someone, if you meet somebody and you're getting to know them more and more, if it seems clear to you that they don't have to overcome some kind of bias or preconceived idea or any notion that you're like going to be a status symbol for them instead of being like a full person. If you're getting together for a long-term relationship, if you're getting married, like the idea is till death do us part. You are signing up for decades of changes in their body shape and size, in their personality, in their ability, in their illness and pain. The book I'm currently writing, my next book, is uh, about sex and long-term relationships, so this is on my mind a lot. Yeah. So you're looking for someone who has already done a lot of the work of overcoming this stuff. You want them to be able to match you in your having overcome all these messages we were taught about who we're supposed to be as sexual people rather than who we truly are. You're also looking for someone whom you can build strong trust with. So trust is being willing to bear a cost for someone. Ooh, okay, wait, break that down for me. So trust is knowing that if you bear a cost for someone else's well-being, you will both gain in the long term. So in a healthy relationship, if one person keeps working in order to keep the bills paid while another partner goes back to school, you are bearing a cost for the other person, trusting that in the long run, it's going to strengthen your relationship and your life together. In a not great relationship, you're going to continue paying the bills while your partner goes to grad school and they're just going to leave afterward, right? Like they, that's a betrayal of trust. So right. who is worth right, right, right. bearing a cost for? There's a, a researcher and relationship therapist named Sue Johnson who describes trust as the answer to the question, are you there for me? And R is an acronym that stands for emotionally accessible, emotionally responsive, and emotionally engaged. So when I come to you with a difficult feeling, will you turn toward me with kindness and compassion? You're looking for someone who can engage with increasing intimacy and authenticity with your difficult feelings. That's a person who's there for you and is willing to bear a cost and is worth bearing a cost for. Guys, no two listeners of the show are exactly alike, which means that no two vacations you take are going to be exactly alike either. And if you're looking for a place that will serve all of you, Texas has a vast landscape of cultures, regions, destinations, and activities that allow for an infinite number of different travel experiences. I love Texas so much, I moved my family there for five years. Because here's the deal, Texas has it all. Are you a beach person? We got you. If you love a rugged vacation, not my jam, but there's plenty of campgrounds, hiking trails, and state parks galore. My favorite part about Texas? The food. 
It is the thing I miss the absolute most. Whether you love barbecue or Tex-Mex or just want to be in cities that take their food very seriously. You can enjoy live music, visit internationally recognized art museums, and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. Visit TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash get your own. To me, being healthy is really grounded in nutrition. Honestly, what I eat and what my kids eat is super important to how we live our lives. It's why I love a company like Thrive Market. Because Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and sourcing methods. They restrict hundreds of ingredients across their food and cleaning categories. So when I go online and I use their on-site filters, I can figure out exactly my lifestyle needs and trust that what I'm getting from Thrive Market is what I want to take into my body. When you join Thrive Market, you're also helping a family in need with their one-for-one membership matching program. You join, they give. You can join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash rach for 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash rach thrivemarket.com slash rach yeah i love that i love that definition but masturbation yes no we're not getting out of here without this conversation yeah before we jump into masturbation real quick i have to ask because you saw me turn bright red trying to talk about a sexual position, lots of stuff that I've worked through and still am working through apparently. Were you always as comfortable with your sexuality and talking about it? And like, is this how you were raised? Is this a way that you became? How did you- Which is not how I was raised. (laughs) So I have this very clear memory. When I was was 11-ish, my mom was driving me home from the library. I think I must have read the word vagina in a book at the library. Because I asked my mom with no idea what I was asking, what's a vagina? And I don't remember any of the words she said, but she had this huge flush of just embarrassment and disconcerting, I don't know what to do in this moment. So when I got home, I looked up vagina in the medical encyclopedia at home, and it taught me what a vagina was. But my mother's response taught me how to feel about what it was. Yes. And yes, it wasn't yes. it wasn't on purpose. She didn't choose that. It just is the instantaneous reaction she had based on her own upbringing. And my father was raised Catholic and that's a whole other thing. I I was not raised I was just raised in I would say like a regular level sex negative American white middle class household. Not extra, but I have always been really curious about sex. The One of the first things I did when I got to college in 1995, I rode my bike from my dorm room to the library and I went to the sex section of the library and I pulled out the height report because it was the thickest book on the shelf. The height report is from a re- the mid-70s um, and sheer height interviewed hundreds of women about their sex lives. And I just sat in the library and read that book 
I didn't check it out because I was too embarrassed to check out the book. But there was something in me that was just really curious about what was going on there. And then I became a peer sex educator. Um, And part of the job when you're a sex educator is not to be embarrassed about stuff. So you just get exposed to lots of things that are outside your comfort zone. And eventually there's like nothing that makes you blush so that if a student brings you any question, you can respond without giving them yet another of the ick responses they've probably gotten right. other places. Right. So it's a combination of natural curiosity and training. That's a great way to get used to anything. Is to, I love that you were just like, no, I just heard so many things that I, at this point, you know, you could tell me anything and I wouldn't bat an eyelash. Yeah. I mean, everybody's got uh, something somewhere where they're like, that's not something I can let go of. But like, (laughs) you got to go really far to find a thing that I'm not just like, oh, yeah, I've already heard about that. I've already seen one of that. Like, I've definitely watched people in person do that to each other. Right. Piercing, I have seen that. Yeah. (laughs) How do you feel like that curiosity has affected your own sex life? Do you feel like you were more free because you were talking to so many people about it and reading about it? Or did that change the way you thought it was supposed to be? I was really fortunate that I started training as a sex educator at the same time that I got into my first sexual relationship. Um, So I could start applying what I was learning to that relationship. Unfortunately, because I come from a uh, not amazing family of origin, the first person I picked for a long-term relationship, unsurprisingly, uh, was not great and ended up uh, being my stalker. So, but the combination of what I was learning as in my training as a sex educator came in so handy. When I was recovering from that, when I was healing from Mm. that experience, because my training began with condoms, contraception and consent and extended into like sexual violence prevention and then sexual assault emergency response. I got deeper and deeper into this work and it helped me to heal myself, not just the wounds from that bad relationship, but the wounds that got me into that bad relationship in the first place. So every partner I had was better than the one before. Until I finally met, it took me until I was 34 to meet a person I could spend the rest of my life with. Like I had to do a whole lot of healing before I could be in a relationship with someone who was whole enough to be in a relationship with me. That's awesome. Well, thank you for answering that. I was curious because you have said so many words that I'm like, I'm trying to Uh imagine a world where I would just be throwing around things like this and be comfortable with it. But clearly I just need to talk about it more and then it'll... yeah. Yeah, I'll and that's dis- most of my job is being able to say the things out loud and be like, "Hey, what if talking about vulvas and clitorises and breasts was just the same as talking about our kneecaps and our ankles and our eyebrows?" Yeah, yeah, that's real. So let's talk about masturbation. Which just saying that word it makes me like a, a yep, feel like it. I'm ten again. Yeah, let's desensitize this thing. Let's. And no, yeah. that didn't make sense emotionally, not physically. If people were raised it's like called I graded was, exposure, graded exposure. All right, it's not necessarily desensitization. It's just being exposed to a stimulus that has typically evoked a certain response, right? Um, and so you expose yourself a little bit to it, so so little that that response doesn't get evoked, and then you increase your level of exposure and that response doesn't get evoked and you increase it, use graded exposure so that you can hear a word like masturbation and have it just be like the word, you know, digestion. Right, right. Part of life. So if people are listening and they have some feelings about that word, that act, 
They've never, it's just the whole yeah. thing. Or they've done it and then felt crazy shame, Terrible. which was yep. more more my vibe was I was like, well, I'm doing this, but I'm just going to feel like the most evil sinner ever for doing yeah. it. Not anymore. Don't worry. Oh, good. Let's just talk about it. How does I that mean, how help did you us? do it? Are you willing to tell the story of how you stopped feeling like the most evil sinner? Well, I think that when, honestly, it was a huge catalyst in that I got divorced and started questioning basically everything that I had ever believed because Mm -hmm. I got divorced and thought, oh, damn, I was raised to believe that in order for me to have sex, I needed to be married. And I found myself at 37. I'm like, I do not want to get married and I would like to have sex again. How can I hold both of these things And that made me kind of begin to pick apart, where does this come from and why do I believe this and why do I fall into this ideology? And then it became about, well, I'm going to do this more and do this with more freedom because I was single, by the way, and it was COVID. So you couldn't like go make out with anybody indiscriminately. And so then I just started to, I'm just going to be open to exploring this more and I would do it and still feel weird afterwards, Mm -hmm. still feel like, oh, I just did something naughty and that was, you know, good God. But over time, it's probably exactly what you said. I just would, I would call bullshit on that thought process. Like, no, this is, I mean, I think of like, are you familiar with IFS therapy? Oh, yes. Right, right. So I'm like, okay, this is a part of you that feels this way. But there's a part of you that comes and scolds you for being a bad girl. Right. But this isn't who we are today. This isn't grown up Rach. This is like baby Rach showing up and having her feelings. So that really helped me to begin to let go of that. And now it's just like, all right, I'm, you know. And have you found the wounded exile whom that protector was trying to keep safe. I haven't gotten that far with because I actually just came to IFS awareness in the last like six months and yes. just finally found an IFS therapist. Cause this is like finding a unicorn at this point in life. They're so popular you can't get into yeah. anybody. But no, she'll show up. We got some other things to work through yeah. first. <laughs> yeah. But internal right family now, systems is so powerful and great. Yeah. Yeah. And can really heal those old wounds from your family by you being the supportive adult caregiver that that part of you never had. Right, 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 right. I remember, it's probably got to be 15 years ago, uh, driving with a friend who went to my church. She was older than me, and she was single. And I think she may still be single today, which, like, live your life. But she really wanted to be married. And I, if I had to guess, I would say she probably is a virgin and will be a virgin, not because she doesn't want to have sex, but because she believes that it would be sinful to have sex outside of marriage. And I remember talking to her like, oh, but you, you masturbate, right? Like you do. And she just imploded. Like she was so mortified and so embarrassed. And I was trying to like, let's just talk about it because dang girl, like what do you, you're in your thirties and you, yeah, I hope you're at least having orgasms, but you're just making yourself feel good. You're, And she was so, oh, it was like, yeah. I, yeah. And I think about that of such an important key of even knowing what you like, what turns you on, what kind mm-hmm. of pressure, all of those things. Yep. If women are listening to this and don't understand why masturbation. They're like, I'm a mom. I'm in my 40s. I don't need to do that. Is there science behind it? Is there any information you could give them that's like, no, this actually will improve other things? Yeah. 
So first of all, it's not up to me to decide what's right or wrong for someone. Right. So if people are just like, nope, that isn't right, and I'm just not going to do it, cool. And (laughs) if you're like, I feel like there might be something there for me, like I can learn how to communicate better with my partner if I know more about what pleasure feels like for me, or I might feel more in control of my sexuality if I know what pleasure feels like in my body. But we know that when people masturbate, and I actually was asked a question um, not that long ago by a millennial who was like, so everybody in high school said that if you masturbate to orgasm by yourself, you won't be able to have an orgasm with a partner. Is that true? The, the opposite is true. No. If you masturbate to orgasm, you are teaching your body what pleasure feels like so that when you get to a connection with a partner... And like this big chunk of your brain transitions away from your own pleasure onto like making sure that your partner's needs and expectations are being met. Like you at least have the grounding of recognizing the sensations in your body and knowing whether or not they're pleasurable, which is where we started. Knowing what pleasure feels like for you. So that when your partner asks, do you like that? At least you know the answer. Right. And right. If, if the answer is no, instead of being like, no, nope, that doesn't feel good, what you can say is, you know what I really love is yes. a little less pressure yes. and a little more speed. Yeah. And then reward them for uh, doing it in a way that is a better fit for you. And you don't have to worry about them feeling criticized because you're not criticizing. You're just asking for what feels best for you. And they get to do the thing that feels best for you. And if your partner is worth being with, they are interested in your pleasure. Right. I love the idea of masturbation for women who haven't maybe experimented with this before because it is something that you are – it's by yourself for yourself. Obviously, you can do it with a partner, but it's by yourself for yourself. And if you grew up with the mentality that that experience was for him – or mm-hmm. was for someone else, I feel like it, there's some there's some power and some ownership that you take back in exploring your body alone. Yeah. I think of Fifty Shades of Grey, which I just would be shocked if you have read. Have you read Fifty Shades of Grey? Yeah, it's a long story. Okay, okay, okay. I will just say it it's, wasn't for me. I, I, I'm unsurprised by that. Uh, that feels – there's so many problems with that. Whatever. In that series, because I read them all, Wait, I want to say this because this is only fair. There's so many problems with that storyline. And also those books made me realize that there were other kinds of sex that I had never. So I just want to honor yes. that there. Though those can, books were not for me. There's a lot of people they were there for. Right, they did a right, lot right, right, of good in the yes. world in expanding a conversation about women's sexual pleasure. 100%. For but whatever problems books, there were. Right, it did good things. I, right. But in those books, he tells her, don't masturbate. I want all of your orgasms. And that's like this theme. That was one of the problems. <laughs> right. And so it's it's what my brain thinks of when I'm like, for anybody who maybe you have had relationships in the past or potentially you're inside of one now where you feel like it is all about their pleasure, for you to be able to, to have some experiences by yourself that feel really good and that are just for you and you don't have to please anybody else and you don't have to try and look sexy. You don't have to fall into any of the old bullshit that you might carry around with you, but you just get to experience like, oh, this feels so good. Yes. So I identify as a sex-positive, trauma-informed feminist, evidence-based sex therapist, sex educator, um, which is is a lot of adjectives. The (laughs) the whole thing. Um, But the 
the sex positive part for me, people get confused because they think it means that all sex is positive and obviously not all sex is positive. Right. Some right. of it is downright evil. Yeah. Uh, but what I mean by sex positive is that everybody gets to choose when and how they are touched. And everybody gets to choose how they feel about their body. Bodily autonomy is my standard for sex positivity. If you get to choose, your orgasms actually belong to you. Mm. You may donate them or share them with whomever you please who is glad to be there and free to leave. But they're yours. That's so good. Oh, that's so good. It's also for anybody who... We didn't talk about this at all because this conversation's been about sex. But it's really worth saying... You're allowed to not want sex. Oh, you're allowed yes. to go. You know, maybe you're like, oh, but you used to love it so much. And you're like, yeah, but in this season of my life, I just, mm -hmm. that was your advice to one of your friends was like, just let it go for right now. Take yeah. that off the table. Take it off the table. Stop. You don't have to try to want sex all the time. So the sex therapist, uh, Peggy Kleinplatz, who I was talking about, sometimes she'll have a couple come in and one of the partners is like, I would be happy if we never had sex again in our whole lives. I'm sorry. I know that's important to the mm. other person, but that's just that's just where I am. Uh, and her question is, tell me more about this sex you don't want. <laughs> because chances are, the sex you don't want is, as Peggy puts it, dismal and disappointing. Yeah. Like it is not sex worth wanting. It is painful or you feel you're just doing it out of obligation or it's boring. And if that's the sex that's available to you, of course you don't want it. Of course you don't and want it. And the problem is not your lack of desire. The problem is the lack of pleasure. So good. The way I summarize it is that pleasure is the measure. Pleasure is the measure of sexual well-being. It doesn't matter who you do it with or how often or where or what positions or anything like that. It's not even how many orgasms you have. It's just whether or not you like the sex that you are having. Yeah. Oh my if gosh. If we can put pleasure at the center of our definition of sexual well-being instead of desire, ev all the other pieces will fall into place. Do you like the sex? I I want to be really conscious of time with you, but I am so grateful. I'm already going to reach out to your team and ask if you can come back and do another episode because this <laughs> is so incredible. And just from like for my me. My team honestly is my husband. So I know. Fine. I know. And he's fantastic. I had many conversations best. with him. I earned him with a lot of therapy. <laughs> Girl, I know. I got one of those as well. But for me to even just get to sit with you and say words that I have never said out loud publicly before is a huge deal. And I, I know because you do this work, you know how big a deal it is. And I hope that so many people are helped by this conversation. Please tell them beyond getting the book, which everybody needs to do. And I think if I remember, you narrate the book as well, correct? I do, yeah. It was the only yes. thing I asked for in my book contract. Yeah, I was getting my lashes done the other day and I was telling her that you were coming on the show and she was so excited. She's like, oh, I love that she narrated it because I really, you know, obviously, same. Like we want we want to hear the author's voice and their inflection. Right. Um, but tell them about more than one book because you have one with your sister now, where they can find you, where they can get more information, like give the audience all the details. Yeah, so there's the books. There's Come As You Are and there's Burnout, which is about stress. 
Uh, I have a newsletter, which you can sign up for at emilynagoski.com. I answer questions about sex. Um, sometimes my sister answer questions about stress. And that's how you can keep up to date to find out when the new book will be released. Uh, and I have a new podcast coming out. And I'll just tell a really cool. quick story about it. Yeah. My producer, Mo, is a Southern born and raised lesbian who was taught with all the abstinence only until marriage, you're a chewed up piece of gum, you're a used up piece of tape stuff. And she read Come As You Are when she was in college. And she kept it on the mantle in her college house as like a statement of who she was as a person, that she <sighs> was not accepting all the lies she was taught earlier, that she was embracing her sexuality for herself, that her pleasure was for her own pleasure. Incredible. And I, it's just like, it's so, it was so, it's been so spectacular. Anyway, the podcast is called Come As You Are and it's on Pushkin. Oh, cool. When does that start? Or has it started already? It will start in a week. It'll start. Oh, my gosh. Mm -hmm. The first episodes are released on November 14th. Okay, perfect. Perfect. Emily, thank you so much for the time. Uh, I sincerely appreciate it. It has totally been my pleasure. The Rachel Hollis Podcast is produced by me, Rachel Hollis. It's edited by Andrew Weller and Jack Noble. It's your time. Join global thought leader, executive producer, and New York Times bestselling author T.D. Jakes and today's leading culture shifters for an experience unlike any other. At the 2024 International Leadership Summit, spiritual and business leaders can gain the practical tools they need to maximize their timing for success. With world-class discussions, breakout sessions, and networking opportunities, this is where your dreams turn into reality. Timing is everything, and your time is now. March 21st through 23rd in Dallas, Texas. Register today at thisisils.org. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers, 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25.